That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you so much for joining me for the next hour. As we talk about various things going on in the world, but we get under a lot of the common stories about them, searching for the things that connect us, even though we might differ on a lot of other things. Because in the end, we are all here together. So that's what this show is about, and I'm really excited to have you along for the ride today. Uh, If you are listening live on Kixie 880 in Seattle. Thank you so much for doing so, and I hope you're having a good drive or a good day wherever you may be. If you are listening to this as a podcast, hey, thank you so much for finding it, subscribing, giving me a review, and sending it on to your friends and your family. I really appreciate that. And remember, you can get this as a podcast. All of the episodes of this show is all about you wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to know more about me, you can check out my website. It's wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at least for now, uh, by looking up at J-D-K-W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me rather easily and would love to connect with you and hear what you have to say about the show and just hear what you have to say, period. So looking forward to hearing from you. Quick thank you here at the front end of the show, as always, to our longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds. And that is a very dynamic and rapidly changing industry. So it's a really good time for anybody who is interested in moving into aerospace to be doing that. But Airway Science for Kids does this in a very unique way. Not only do they introduce jobs and careers and and 21st century skills to students, But they also do it in a much more holistic way that helps students develop skills of self-advocacy, self-confidence, and more that they can apply in themselves, within their families, and within their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, check out their website at airsci.org. And you'll hear more about them during the breaks. So... Here we are, middle of July. It is summertime. There's uh, a lot of people are moving around, going on vacations or doing types of visits with family, all the things that we normally do in the summer. And of course, this summer, though, like every other summer, there's a lot more going on than that. And this year, of course, hanging over everything, seemingly, are big events going on in the news. That's why I always kick off the show with a segment like we're about to do now that I call What in the world is going on? Overnight, first, Ukraine claiming responsibility for an attack on the vital bridge connecting Russia to the annexed peninsula of Crimea. A source inside Ukraine's security service says it was a joint operation with Ukraine's naval forces. Russia saying the attack was carried out by two Ukrainian seaborne drones. Ukrainian intelligence says the damage will create difficulties for Russian forces who use the bridge as a, quote, major logistics hub for moving resources into the territory. 
Now, that comes as we also learned just a few hours ago that Russia is pulling out of a crucial deal that allows Ukraine to safely export grain to the world. And of course, the one of the big things hanging over all of us this summer is the continued war in Ukraine as the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to gain gain ground, but very, very slowly at the immense cost of human lives and material. And this hit on the Kerch Bridge, which is the primary conduit from the Russian mainland to the Crimean Peninsula, is significant in the sense that it is the only it is the only outlet, at least on with roads that the Russians can use to get out of Crimea. And they occupied Crimea back in 2014. And so unless their army wants to be surrounded at some point, they're either going to have to choose to dig in, defend that bridge, and fight to the death, or they're going to have to retreat before that bridge is fully destroyed. And that is exactly what the Ukrainians were trying to do here in the big picture, is to put, a, put the fear of that type of choice in front of the Russian military command. Because neither option is good for the Russians. Also over the weekend, a number of new intelligence reports coming out from a number of NATO partners uh, laying out the exact cost of this invasion so far for the Russian military. And as of right now, conservative estimates are about 50% of Russian military stores of hardware, ammunition, tanks, aircraft have been destroyed, damaged, or captured in this war so far, which is beyond the level of catastrophe. Just to give it, uh, just to give it context, a large military that loses 10% of its equipment and its, uh, its weapons, all those types of things together, generally is considered a military that will not win whatever campaign it is in because those are considered unsustainable losses. 50%, it just underscores exactly how costly that this has been for Russia in the long run. And of course, Russia, one of the diplomatic and political leverages it, it has, it has the ability to cut off Ukraine's food shipments to the rest of the world. They had reached an agreement to, do, to allow that to happen, which had helped reduce grain prices and had increased grain availability, particularly in places like South Asia and Africa that relies a lot on Ukrainian wheat in particular. Now that has been cut off, which means another ripple, a big one, is going to go through the global food market which is only going to exacerbate larger problems within the global economy, including here in the United States. So as that continues to move forward, we are seeing more and more of an approach towards some really, really decisive moments in this war coming up one way or the other. Meanwhile, something else hanging over all of us more and more here in the United States increasingly is a lot of smoke from Canada. The total area burned in Canada already has shattered records. Now 10 million hectares, that's almost 25 million acres, an area nearly as large as the state of Ohio, and still burning. And when they burn like this, there's no way to even put people in front of it to even stop the fire. There's no amount of resources on the ground or from the sky that's gonna be able to stop one of these fires when they, when they get the momentum. Of course, the fires going on in Canada, the worst in that country's history and an indicator of what seemingly uh, seems to be a new normal happening on the North American continent as well as in Europe and elsewhere every summer. That seems to be getting worse every single year. In fact, the eastern seaboard has once again received a warning that later this week they are again going to be shrouded in smoke from those wildfires. The majority of those in Canada happening in the eastern half of the country so far. Out here in the West Coast, where I'm located, we are more than used to this. Uh, over usually late in the summer, right about now into August, 
fires that happen in the western part of Canada, smoke will blow down this way. That hasn't happened yet, but is only a matter of time. And in that larger report, the interviews that you would hear there are largely with American firefighters coming up from places like Arizona and Nevada and Oregon and Washington State, mainly because at least right now, they are available to go fight those fires. What happens if and when, and the chances are it's when, fires pick up in Canada or in the Western United States, as they happen to do every year, there are going to be fewer and fewer firefighters available to fight more and more fires. And that's when things like a fire the size of the state of Ohio can actually become a real thing. And in a situation like that, you cannot surround that fire. You can mainly, if you're lucky, be able to prevent it from going at least in one direction you don't want it to go, which means a lot of really uncomfortable choices may have to be made. And at some point, you have enough of those fires building, and there's fires going on in Southern California right now in the middle of their heat wave. You get enough of those building, you're not going to be able to do too much other than generally contain them and protect people. Meanwhile, what that does to the atmosphere above our heads, uh, not just here, but around the world, continues to worsen. It is a problem that is not going to be going away anytime soon and might very well be the type of thing that has to push us to make tougher and tougher choices in things like where we live, how we travel, what we eat and when we eat it, and in the end, what our expectancies for living a longer and healthy life can be. Because breathing in smoke every single summer for decades on end, which might be what's coming, is going to have a direct effect on overall global health in a very, very distinct way. So, not to keep things too bummed out in all of this, but nevertheless, those are the two big things sort of hanging over a lot of us right now going on in the world. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into today's story. And the story I'm putting at the center of today has to do with making choices, or more accurately, taking sides. You might understand this from listening to the show for a while, but if you're new to the show, uh, you will learn. I spend a lot of my time when I'm not in here doing this show, doing a lot of reading. I keep up a lot on what's going on in the world. It's one reason why I start this show with the news. I also read a lot of history, as is my training. I have a PhD in, in the subject. I read a lot about current events. I read a lot of literature, philosophy. Uh, I, I just generally like to read and to learn more about things, both things that I know that I can dig deeper into and things that are brand new to me or have, are becoming new interests. So I'm always fascinated in learning more and applying more. So one of my regular things that I do, I, I don't watch the news on a regular basis. In fact, barely ever do I watch it. I tend to read about it and I get a number of different you know, notifications every day on my phone and in my email from various publications that I like uh, and that I enjoy that give me articles to read. And one popped up over the weekend, and it was a history story about uh, a woman named Nancy Cunard. Some of you may know who Nancy Cunard was. If you do, chances are one of your big interests is literature of the turn of the 20th century, the first half of the, 20, uh, first half of the 20th century, because she was a British writer. She was actually a, the heiress, if you recognize her last name, Cunard, she was uh, in the family of the heirs to the Cunard shipping line fortune. Uh, Cunard had ships like the Lusitania, most famous, that was sunk during World War I. Their big rival was the White Star Line, which, of course, the Titanic was a part of the White Star Line. But other than just sending passengers around the world, Cunard and other shipping companies 
also shipped a ton of freight and goods around the world. And so these were among the biggest and most wealthy families of the era. And we're talking about the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s uh, into about the middle of the century after the Second World War. Nancy Cunard uh, grew up with a lot of money and from an early age uh, became very interested in running counter to <laughs> what she experienced in her family and became increasingly a social critic. If you were to, if you look her up and you look up pictures of her, you will see someone who for the 1920s and 1930s, when she was really in adulthood, she was born in 1896, she is the definition of bohemian. As somebody who had traveled around the world and had families with resources, she was very flamboyant in what she bought, but she was very unconventional. Uh, she wore a lot of clothes that she got from places around the world, India, Africa, and elsewhere, which just didn't match up with what you would expect a British heiress woman in the early part of the 20th century to be wearing. She did not follow decorum. She did not follow expectations. Uh, she was certainly not demure in her opinions, and she was openly uh, engaging with the intellects of the time, in particular writers. She wrote a great deal of poetry, among other things, but she counted among her friends eventually in life some pretty big names uh, and was, was rubbing elbows with famous writers that people still know today, like James Joyce and George Orwell and Ernest Hemingway. So she was a contemporary of all of them and well-known inside writing circles for going against the grain. During World War I, which was a period where writers and, intellect and intellectuals really, really became alarmed at what the First World War was producing to the, to the point that many of them wrote about the end of civilization because it was so destructive, not just in military terms, but to economies and to everyday lives and to this idea that humanity could continue to improve over time, which had been a longstanding thought for at least 200 years. All of this came into question and art movements like Dada and others began to deliberately rebel against these old norms about the superiority of European culture, as well as this inherent belief that people seem to have that humanity was constantly moving in a direction of improvement. And these were writers and artists and musicians and others that came to define this generation, particularly that generation that existed between the two world wars. So the end of 1918 and the onset of the war, at least in Europe, in 1939. All these writers that I've already mentioned, including Nancy Cunard, all were writing prolifically by the time we got to the 1930s. And of course, by the early 1930s, an additional element had been added, two additional elements had been added to this angst among writers and intellectuals in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. That was the Great Depression, which crashed global economies, particularly in Europe. Uh, if you know American history, you know it was quite the struggle here with upwards of at 1.20% unemployment in various parts of the country. In Europe, it was even more pronounced. Those economies were, all, many of them, tied to America's economy after the First World War as part of rebuilding from that war. And so countries like Germany just collapsed when the, when the Depression began in the United States. Germany, for example, ended up with almost 50% unemployment at one point, and that had a direct cause in the rise of the Nazi Party. Similar things, of course, after World War I had disturbed the entire global order of things. In Russia, the Tsar came down at the end of World War I. It was eventually replaced by the Bolshevik Party, 
which created the Soviet Union under Vladimir Lenin, later on Joseph Stalin, and others. And eventually, after World War II, became one of the two great superpowers in the world and set the stage for the Cold War with the United States. That began in 1917-1918, that process. And that was an absolutely brutal regime that came to power when Lenin put it all together and continued for a lot of its existence. So all of that was going on in the 1930s. And at the same time, with the rise of Nazism, there was the rise of fascism in Italy that began in the 1920s. You had the rise of Japanese imperialism and militarism in Asia beginning in the 1920s and certainly taking off in the 1930s with their invasions into China in both 1931 and 1937. By the time we get to 1937, if you were an intellectual in the English-speaking world and you were taking a look at what was going on in the world, it sure seemed like the tide seemed to be changing. Whereas democracies had been strong prior to the Great Depression or stronger, seemingly, the world, World War I had shattered a lot of confidence in people's belief that democracy was the right way of doing things. And also, these totalitarian, authoritarian regimes like the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan, by the late 1930s, they all had something in common that democracies around the world did not. Almost everybody in their countries was employed. <laughs> it was, and the, their economies were booming. Now, the Soviet Union, not quite so much, and for reasons that I'm going to get into, because that's a key part of what we're going to talk about today. But in the case of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan, their economies were chugging along. They were wartime economies, essentially, that they were building towards conquest. Now, you can, we can talk about whether that's a workable model or not, but nevertheless, that was the impression that was going on around the world, that for some, this was the wave of the future. Democracy and uh, the liberal order and capitalism, to many, increasing numbers, had failed because of the Depression. That was the proof. And these rising totalitarian regimes seemed to have the answers to bringing people together, to ending social disorder, and bringing about economic prosperity within these countries. Now, that was from the outside looking in. The reality was a lot different and more brutal, depending on who you were talking about, on the ground in those countries. But that was the impression. And so by, the, by about 1937, intellectuals in Europe had a lot of things to be talking about, pondering, and trying to figure out what was the right course of action for themselves and for humanity, because after all, they were the commentators on this. Nancy Cunard, in 1937, having been a part of these conversations, finally decided that it had, it had come to be time for writers to decide where they stood on a key question and to make that clear to the rest of the world. And these were all household names in a lot of places. So when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you what she did in 1937, the context of it, and then branch that out to talk a little bit about what that means for us today. So come on back on This Show is All About You. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, 
Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. And I left off before the break telling you about Nancy Cunard, her background and the background of sort of the intellectual writers of the early 20th century and where they were by the time we arrived about 1937. And that year is significant for a number of reasons. Late in the year, uh, Japan would dispense with the illusion that it wasn't trying to conquer China and just overtly invaded it and uh, tried to take that over. And it became clear that the world was headed towards war. Meanwhile, at the same time, and more importantly for intellectuals in Europe and in the United States, in 1937, the Spanish Civil War began, which came to be seen after World War II as this precursor to the war in Europe that would erupt just about two years later in 1939. Now, there were some reasons to think about that, and there were some people like Nancy Cunard who really truly believed the Spanish Civil War was going to be a precursor to a second world war, which horrified her, having lived through the first one and lost uh, one, of her, one of the many lovers that she had in her life. One of the closest ones was killed in World War I, and many believe she never really recovered from that. And so she had deep emotional resonance in some questions when the Spanish Civil War broke out. And really quickly, the Spanish Civil War began when, in 1936, in an election, a democratic election, uh, so-called, uh, I guess you could call it an anti-fascist coalition of of uh, parties, one election over a growing fascist movement that was called, they called themselves the Nationalists, but deep down they were really fascist. They won out in this 1936 election, and it was kind of a hodgepodge of non-right-wing parties to pull this together. One of the big parties in that coalition was the Spanish Communist Party, but there were other ones that were not overtly communist. Communism, of course, looking for to create a global revolution of the working class to overthrow the bourgeois capitalist class and impose what they called a dictatorship of the proletariat, the working class, over their country. And then this was supposed to, according to communist doctrine, spread like wildfire throughout the world and create an egalitarian society around the world. And if this was, if you were a communist, you believed that this was inevitable. Now, that's one form of socialism, radical socialism, as people called it. And there were lots of other versions of socialism, including social democracy, which was very popular in Europe in this, in this time period, in which socialist aims like having more, you know, more egalitarian society, having more things like health care and education paid for. All of these things were seen as desirable, but not with the revolution that came with it and the bloodshed that the communists seemed to be promising. So there were a number of socialists across the spectrum towards the center throughout Europe who believed in democratic norms for more socialist goals. And that is still a tradition that exists in Europe today. At the time in Spain, however, when this election happened, it was a very a pretty clear victory for the, the so-called Republican forces. And so this was like an elected republic, but it was a left-of-center coalition that was going to hopefully run Spain. And the communists were a big part of it, but not the only part of it. Problem, though, was the Nationalist Party did not accept the election results, and the Nationalist Party had the support of the military. 
And a military general named Francisco Franco became the leader of a revolt against the elected government beginning in 1937, whose intent was to overthrow that government and install a military dictatorship that would be based on nationalist principles, heavily steeped in the fascist principles of Italy, to a lesser extent, Nazi Germany. And Franco, uh, Francisco Franco, even though he had meetings with Mussolini, the leader of Italy, and of course Hitler, never really necessarily saw eye to eye on with any of them, with either of them on a lot of things. And eventually, <laughs> he would, they would win, of course. Spoiler alert. They would win. And eventually, they would declare neutrality in World War II, much to the deep, deep anger of one Adolf Hitler. But that's what Franco was interested in, was creating a stable Spanish country. And he, among many others, in the nationalist side of things, in the military or otherwise, believed that the Republican side was really all about disorder, about communism, about bringing socialism and destroying uh, Spanish national identity, and therefore they needed to be defeated. And so in 1937, the nationalists attacked in Madrid and elsewhere and started the Spanish Civil War. And this became something of a cause celebre among intellectuals uh, throughout Europe and the United States, to the point that you had writers like Ernest Hemingway who went there and fought in the Spanish Civil War and wrote about it in glowing terms. So the majority of writers in Europe and America ended up siding with the Republican side, in part because they weren't fascists. <laughs> that was the first part. But also, there were many of them who leaned left, and depending on who we're talking about, went way left, to the point of supporting communism, as expressed by the Soviet Union, but with very few of them fully understanding the degree to which the Soviet Union ran its own system on terror. And so, and there were certainly indications of that, and among those so-called fellow travelers who supported the Soviet Union, there was oftentimes some willing blindness to the brutality of what Lenin and Stalin had put together and were running. By this point in the 1930s, it's Stalin fully running the show, brought the entire Soviet Union to heel through the great purges uh, that had killed millions in his own country and destroyed his military effectively from the bottom up. But all of that was sort of off to the side. And intellectuals like Nancy Cunard saw what was happening in the Spanish Civil War as this clear indicator of what was to come that elected democracies and dictatorial regimes like fascism could not coexist in perpetuity and that eventually they were going to fight. And the scary thing for her and for others who were anti-fascist was that some of the most powerful countries in the world had chosen this direction, namely Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, Imperial Japan, but particularly Germany, which had been one of the major fighters in World War I. So all of this swimming together created a series of discussions, fevered discussions among writers. Nancy Cunard in 1937, having talked about these things ad nauseum, finally decided she was going to put forward a pamphlet demanding other writers take a stand on where they stood on the Spanish Civil War because it wasn't necessarily clear. And she called out and said, effectively, that in something that had such clear sides, Republican democracy on one side and fascism on the other, it was impossible and indeed immoral, from her point of view, for writers to not take a side, that they should take a side in all of this. Now, she put this out um, 
writing it with a, another friend of hers. It was a questionnaire, really, that she sent out and then made it public to all the writers in Europe. And through an organization, a journal called The Left Review, so she was on the political left, it published uh, an article late in 1937 called Authors Take Sides on the Spanish War. Cunard sent 200 writers a questionnaire and essentially asked them one thing. Are you for or against the legal government and the people of Republican Spain, or are you for or against Franco and fascism? For it is impossible any longer to take no side. 200 of those were sent out, and it was clear that these, the, re the results were going to be published. She got 147 answers in the end. Of those 147, 126 supported the Republic. Not a surprise. A lot of intellectuals were left of center. So that wasn't a surprise. And some big names penned their support for the Republic. W.H. Auden, Samuel Beckett, Rebecca West, and others. Only five of those who answered responded in favor of Franco. Evelyn Waugh, Edmund Blunden, Arthur Machen, Jeffrey Moss, and Eleanor Smith. Those names don't mean anything to you. That's okay, but they were big names at the time. There were some who claimed neutrality, and some pretty some bigger names here. Uh, it was kind of a kind of an uneasy neutrality, if you will. H.G. Wells, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Vera Britton. Those are some big names. They said neutral, and claimed the position that it was important for writers, particularly public intellectuals and commentators to keep some distance, to keep a larger picture on things, to avoid getting sucked down into the political muck of picking one side or the other, which all of them in their responses claimed had happened to Nancy Cunard. She had gotten too into the weeds on this. The most famous response, though, and it ended up not being included in the Left Review's publishing, for probably for good reason, came from none other than George Orwell, probably the writer in Europe the most qualified to speak about these totalitarian regimes because he was writing about them. Of course, his books 1984 and Animal Farm were specifically about fascism and communism, respectfully. And he refused to answer. And this was what he said. I'm going to quote it. Will you please stop sending me this bloody rubbish? This is the second or third time I've had it. I am not one of your fashionable pansies like Auden or Spender. I was six months in Spain, most of the time fighting. I have a bullet hole in me at present, and I'm not going to write blah about defending democracy or gallant little anybody. <laughs> not a surprise if you know Orwell's work, because Orwell believed that from either direction, from right or from left, tyranny could result. If people came to believe in an ideology that was so powerful and claimed apocalyptic aims as Soviet communism and, and German fascism did, for example, that the only way to create a perfect society was through violence and revolution. In the case of communism, violence against the upper classes of society in the name of the working class and in the, sense, in the, in the context of Germany, race war against everybody who wasn't a so-called Aryan. If you embraced either one of those things, or if human beings embraced those, they could do horrific evil from either direction. So it's not a surprise that Orwell answered this way. Other writers who refused to contribute to this include some other big names, Virginia Woolf, Bertrand Russell, E.M. Forster, and James Joyce. They refused to participate in this for reasons that, depending on who we're talking about, are not clear or are clearer in others. 
But nevertheless, this was something that gained some notoriety, made Nancy Cunard a controversial figure, even more so than she had been before all of this. And, of course, seeing how the Spanish Civil War turned out, there's a reason why this story lasted as long as it did and why, it's, why I'm talking about it today. The Spanish Civil War ended in 1939 with the victory of Franco over the Republican government, and it was a bloody mess. Nazi Germany and fascist Italy supported Franco militarily with primarily equipment, tanks and aircraft, but also in some cases with pilots, advisors and personnel. And some of the things that we would see in World War II, the bombing of civilian targets in cities, Barcelona, for example, Madrid and other, happened first in the Spanish Civil War. The wiping out of distinctions between military in the field and civilians, which became a hallmark of World War II with bombing campaigns and the blitzkriegs that rolled across Europe, flattening towns and villages and cities in equal abandon, as well as attacking military forces. We saw this in Spain as well. Writers, some flocked and fought on the side of the Republican side in the case of Hemingway, uh, some of his most famous books for whom the bell tolls, for example, came out of that. Others were disillusioned by their experience. And for many, fighting on the Republican side in Spain underscored the degree to which that side had its own problems, particularly the communist group that was looking to create revolution, first not only in Spain, but then throughout all of Europe and the world. So you had a, a lot of disillusionment by the time this was over. Now, of course, when Hitler began World War II in Europe in 1939 with the invasion of Poland in September, prefaced by an unbelievable deal with Stalin to divide up Poland and Eastern Europe between these two sworn enemies, each of them biding time until they could fight one another, when you added all that together, this was an absolute set of body blows to intellectuals like Cunard and others. When Stalin cut a deal with Hitler in August of 1939, intellectuals who were supportive of the Soviet Union or leaned that direction or refused to believe that the Soviet Union was as bad as German and other propaganda set, uh, claimed to be, many of them just abandoned communism altogether and found themselves in a place that they did, weren't familiar with, not really knowing where they stood. Because for many of them, the problems of liberal democracy and capitalism had been proven in the decade prior or even further back in that banks and others had profited off the First World War. So they found themselves really as people within a world with no ideology to really cling to or to really say this is the best system around which human beings should organize themselves. This, of course, became challenged during the war as the war not only began to kill millions of civilians, but the crimes, in particular of the Nazis, became more and more prevalent, and then immediately after the war became clearer and clearer. The Nazi organized campaign of mass murder against Jews and any other people that they considered to be so-called undesirables. All of that cast into sharp relief after the war those people who had said, oh, we support Franco, because the implication became they supported fascism. Some of them never escaped that label. There were others who had supported the Republican side who, when that became clear, was heavily supported by Stalin and others. They were labeled as Stalinists or apologists for the Soviet Union. And after the Second World War, that wasn't a good thing to be labeled as the Cold War began to take precedence over rebuilding from the Second World War. Now, with all of that going on, there was no ever any consensus 
on this. And the reason why I'm talking about it today is in part because of the history of it, but because we are finding more and more as the war in Ukraine continues and questions about NATO and NATO's cohesion and what may happen in Taiwan with China in the midst of this and what is Iran going to do in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, for example. As all this happens, there are more and more people talking about or bringing up in the context of the Ukraine war that could Ukraine be a new Spanish civil war, a precursor to something that is going to be much worse. And if you feel that chill, <laughs> you know, at that idea, that's exactly my point. That is where a lot of this is coming from. This Time Magazine article that I read over the weekend was coming from this position. So what does that mean? Are we at a point where writers or public intellectuals, commentators now, right, there's a lot more avenues for people to comment than there used to be in the 1930s. Is it time for people to be making clear where they stand on the Ukraine war, whether it's pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia, around other things? And it's a very tempting thing to put out there. What I'd like to talk about after the break are, how does that really apply? Can we draw from Nancy Cunard's experience or should we draw from the larger historical experience of how the Spanish Civil War and World War II turned out to give ourselves a little bit of a guide on that question for ourselves today? So when we come back from the break, let's talk a little bit about our own taking sides here on this show is all about you. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back to this show is all about you. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, talking about taking sides. And before the break, I talked about the Spanish Civil War and the questionnaire put out by intellectual Nancy Cunard to all the writers, the famous writers, some of the most famous individuals of that era in the 1930s, telling them they needed to take a side in the Spanish Civil War, either the fascist side or the elected Republican government, which was still a very left of center government. That part sometimes kind of faded in people's ideology of the time. But there were a whole lot of responses to that. And in the end, uh, it didn't really, it certainly didn't do anything to shape the outcome of the Spanish Civil War or prevent the onset of the Second World War. And that, of course, is something that for writers and intellectuals of all kinds uh, is pretty much a constant rule of the business. Very few commentators are able to directly affect choices that usually are in the political realm, the military realm, or in the uncontrollable realm, like the weather or natural occurrences, natural disasters. They aren't in a position to influence them or directly. They can be a part of expressing a, a popular view on something. They can certainly be a part of whipping up popular sentiment, of lobbying in this day and age of politicians and others. And in this age of social media, of course, uh, can leverage these types of things into their own sort of their own news stories. Time and time again, we see more and more news stories on uh, the different feeds that pop up 
that are about social media reactions to something a certain person did or something a certain person said or a certain event. And that itself has become newsworthy. So in some ways, it's a very different world, uh, some big ways. It's a very different world than the world of the 1930s. But nevertheless, when it is like in the 1930s, evident that there are deep-seated beliefs in not only the rightness of democracy, but also a lot of deep-seated anxiety about the future of liberal democracy and capitalism and the growth of authoritarian regimes, if not quite totalitarian, authoritarian regimes that exist and can do a lot of damage, like what Russia is doing, like what China could possibly do, and others. Too many who take a look back and want to see history as this thing that constantly repeats itself, taking a look and going, are we at the point where a third world war or something like that might be on the horizon as if somehow what we're seeing here is this inevitable precursor. Now, the first thing I would say is there is absolutely nothing, nothing inherently inevitable about one event being the precursor to another. While people like Cunard and others, even Hemingway, talked about what happened in Spain as perhaps something that was going to be a precursor of something larger, there was no way they were going to know that, and it didn't necessarily matter one way or the other how the Spanish Civil War turned out. Hitler, if you've spent any time studying him, and I have, Hitler was going to invade in Europe one way or the other. It did not matter who won in Spain in the end. So it can be really tempting to say this is going to determine that. The problem that does is that it takes out human agency, both of big leaders who can make those decisions as well as individual people who can decide whether or not they want to follow along, believe in these things, invest their time, their money, their blood in all of those things. It takes human agency out. So I'm always cautious with things like that. I have the same feeling when you hear calls today or, or fears today that there's going to be a civil war in the United States. I do not think that is imminent. Certainly there's strife in this country. There's a lot of division in this country. There's also a lot of, of signs that aren't there when a country is about to collapse into civil war. Things like pretty high unemployment, there's declining inflation, and overall there are a lot of people doing better right now than even five years ago. That said, History is replete with examples of things happening when people are caught by surprise, things that were not anticipated, things were, that were original in, a, in and of themselves. So history is not a really great crystal ball in that sense. It can be helpful, from my opinion, in figuring out what might not happen, but not necessarily predicting what will happen. Okay, so with that said, what does this story about taking sides tell us today? Should we be taking sides? Now, there are some, at least when it comes to talking about the war in Ukraine, for example, that are making their position clear. And a lot of American commentators, um, including politicians and the majority of politicians in both political parties, at least right now, are expressing open support for Ukraine in this war against Russia. I consider that to be a good thing. I count myself among those who have clearly taken a side when it comes to that war. Um, and I am... I fully support what Ukraine is doing, and I support the assistance that they are being given to do this. This does not mean, however, that I think that everything the Ukrainians are doing is the greatest thing in the world. It does not take away the fact that they, before the war, were dealing with significant issues of corruption within their own government, and they certainly had their own problems socially and politically. To me, however, the invasion by Russia trumps all of that when it comes to the right of a country to exist on its own merits and to fight its own battles internally and to do so 
without another country interfering with it the way Russia is trying to do. And in fact, Russia has been open, or at least Putin has been open, in that effectively the goal here is to erase Ukraine, not just as a political entity, but also effectively as something unique from Russia. Putin is steeped in nostalgia about the Soviet Union, a nostalgia about the Soviet Union that is all about power, that pushes away all of its brutal past with everything, the gulags, the purges, all of those things, and instead focuses on the heroic actions of the Red Army in World War II and the heroic sacrifice, from Putin's point of view, of 27 million Russians to win that war. He, of course, ignores the millions of Ukrainians who fought on the side of the Soviet Union in that war, either out of ideological affinity or hatred of the Germans, or because they were forced to by the Red Army. So that conveniently forgets that part. However, <laughs> in all of that, for me, it's a clear choice in all of those things uh, to support Ukraine in this because it is and has become something much bigger than Ukraine. Putin has shown through this action that he effectively, based on a whim, can make something happen that when he wants to and is willing to put Russia and nuclear power in a position of antagonism with the rest of the world. And in the case of Europe, Ukraine butts up right against the NATO alliance, an alliance that is formed around the basis of an attack on any one of those countries will be considered an attack on all of those who are in the alliance, including the United States. The idea when this was built in the 1950s was to make a third world war less possible because starting something small in Europe, if it was against a NATO state, would bring in the might of the rest of Europe and in particular the United States. So in that sense, deterrence. That's what this was about. And that's what NATO has been about since day one. The idea that because the United States and the big powers of Europe are united together and will defend any one of their members as an attack on all is a pretty big deterrent. And so far has been holding true, at least in this, at least up until this point in the Ukraine war. So it, again, begs the question that I started the day with. When we pick sides, or should we pick sides, in what's going on? And I'm making clear that in the case of the Ukraine war, this is, when we're talking about that dynamic, yes, I'm supporting Ukraine in that. It's a reason why I lead every show, and I have since the war started, I lead every show with an update about what's happening in Ukraine for that reason, because I believe it's that important uh, to the rest of the world. And it's important for me, personally, to put my own opinions out there about it. Otherwise, what am I doing here, right? I'm just going to be talking about something, and I don't want to be wishy-washy on this question because I don't think there is anything to be wishy-washy about. That said, though, when we ask about taking sides, if someone asked me to go beyond taking sides on the Ukraine-Russia war, is there a side I could take? Well, yes. The side I would take is liberal democracies, where people, as imperfect as it might be, get to have a say in their own country, say in their own political system, say in the choices that their country makes. Sometimes they win in those elections, sometimes they lose. I will support that over a system like Putin's or a system like communist China every single day and twice on Sunday, as they say, because I truly believe that, that is a, this is the type of system that works best for all its imperfections, for all of its inequalities, for all of its inequities. This type of system, liberal democratic system, allows for progress, for change, for growth, for adaptation over time, 
in a much more beneficial way than certainly anything that we see authoritarian today and certainly better than anything like Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, Imperial Japan, or the Soviet Union once represented. To me, that's informed by my understanding of the history of those countries. I am not necessarily representative of the amount of people who understand the history of those countries because I've studied it for a living. I have a PhD in it. Not everybody has that. So this question about choosing sides is poignant because oftentimes, as I've talked about on the show before, choosing sides in this political climate, whether we're talking about Ukraine and Russia, whether we're talking about Republican or Democrat, whether we're talking any social issue, becomes immediately like a dividing line between armies. A dividing line for some people that's just as real as the dividing line between Russians and Ukrainians currently. And that itself is a problem because that is something that within systems like ours should not happen and cannot last in perpetuity if the country wants to progress, if the country wants to grow, if the country wants to help more of its citizens benefit over time than benefit now. So first thing is, what are we talking about when we say taking sides? The second thing, and this is the thing I will leave you with, is if we take sides on something to the point that one side is the enemy, there is not a whole lot of compromise in there. There's not a whole lot of dialogue in there because the assumption is, like what happens in war, the time for talking is over. That's been tried, or it's been ignored, or it's whatever the case may be, and it's time to fight it out. And might makes right. In a case like where we're talking about politically in this country, or even around things like fires and what do we do about climate change, to simply treat the other side as an implacable enemy makes a solution all the more elusive and perhaps impossible because it is simply about one side achieving victory over another. Taking sides, it seems to me, has to include opportunities for others on the other side to walk over to our side or for us to change our mind and walk over to the other. Now, when it comes to the extremes, the political extremes, I leave those off to the side. Those are people that simply are, it's going to be very difficult to talk through or allow to come over to one side unless they have a wholesale change on their own. That can happen but it's usually pretty rare. So what I'm talking about, the people that are in the so-called vital center, which is where countries that are healthy, democratic countries, rule from. A center of people combined on the left and the right who are moderate in the middle. That is a sizable portion in this country, as well as in other countries around the world, but they do not get the attention that the extremes get. And they certainly don't get the attention of social media because those groups of trolls that have all united around their own various causes are too busy lobbing verbal bombs at one another to necessarily take a good look at themselves. And so what I'm suggesting today to finish up this episode is taking sides itself should come from our own sense of values, but those values should include the benefit of more than just ourselves. Individual freedoms and democracy are really important. Equally important are the social contract elements written into constitutions and into the historical practices of democracies where 
there are individual rights and they have to be balanced against what is beneficial for the larger whole. And that is incomplete, that is always unclear, that is always debatable, and it is always a moving target, depending on the country that we're talking about. However, it's the conversation itself, the debate itself, which doesn't have to be combat, that helps move things forward. That process helps new ideas come about, old ideas to be left behind, and for consensus to build, even if it takes years around various issues that can be of benefit to more and more people in the present and in the future. And you don't just have to take my word for it. You can take a look back at the history of the United States, of other democratic countries, and see that amidst all the problems, amidst the paradoxes, the hypocrisies, the problems, the inequities, the inequalities, that is all still there. The potential to shift those, whatever they might be, exists more in liberal democracies than in any other system in human history. And until a better one comes along, <laughs> and guaranteed, authoritarianism and totalitarianism are not better options. This is the one that seems to work best. So when you think about taking sides, perhaps we need to think about it from that perspective, rather than something simplistic like Nancy Cunard was putting forward, but also something a lot less simplistic than what many of us can put forward on social media and elsewhere. All right, so that's it for this episode of This Show Is All About You. Really thank you for sticking around for all of this. Hopefully this was something that was illuminating. Perhaps it was infuriating. Perhaps it was frustrating. Perhaps it was a lot of things. That's the point. <laughs> that's the point. Whatever it was, I would love to hear from you. Check out wordsbyjdk.com. You can reach out to me there. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter about any of this, and I would be happy to talk with you about it. Next week, I'll make sure I give you some updates on some things that are going on with me, uh, but just simply ran out of time today. This was too important to talk about. So, as I always do, let's give some thank yous here at the end of the show. Uh, make sure I've got them all. Oh, and first, before I do that, remember, you can get any of this episode or all the episodes of this show is all about you as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks so much, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week. Goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, and Steve and Abby Foster, Luke Foster, Ken and Margaret Winnikin, Mary Olson, Seth Mormon, Emily McFetrich, Phil McCoy, Ashley Kniebel, Ingrid Johnson, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And to you listeners, thank you so much. I could not do this for you without you. And to send you off into the rest of the week, let's end as we always do with an original haiku. Should we choose a side, we should stand on principle, not our opponents. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>